Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Happy Sabbath. Und Sabbath und unsere Freunde in Deutschland. Happy Sabbath to our friends in Germany. Now let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will be here, that our hearts might be humble and gracious and loving, and that as we examine the truths uh, about your kingdom and the time in which we live, that we might be enabled to present a message that will prepare the world for your return. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson uh, number seven in our uh, study guide, Worship, and the title this week is Worship in Psalms. And first question, what is your favorite psalm? Okay, 23rd Psalm. I've got that one. Okay? Besides the 23rd Psalm. 91? 90? Number one. Number one. 71. 71. Don't, don't, don't they all, aren't there so many that are so good? Okay, we can't go through them all today. But I, I, I picked a couple that we might want to go through. Uh, we've gone through Psalm 23 before, so we're not going to go through it again. It's in, we've gone through it several times, uh, the Psalm of Conversion. Uh, Psalms 23. Let's let's look at Psalms 19. Let's look at Psalms 19. Let me pull out the the psalm here and turn your scripture to Psalms 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hand. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and make its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure altogether and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. Keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent, of great transgression. May the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What do you think about this psalm? I mean, this has got a section in it I think we've all very familiar with, right? Any questions come to your mind? Yes? I think of like when a child that's really, really happy, they can't contain themselves for joy. There's so much joy in this psalm. I can see why the Israelites did a lot of joyful dancing. I like that. I like that. I, I'm a little more analytic. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm just going to say that the heavens declare the glory of God. I mean, when you look up at the stars, God's message is written among the stars. Okay, so how do the heavens declare the glory of God? Well, if you go back, you really want to hear it. No, you're exactly right, yes. When you study the original language, not the pagan, when you go to the encyclopedia, you study the pagan, you learn about the pagan meanings of the constellations, but when you study the original meanings, it's talking about the plan of salvation in the heavens. Oh, he's talking about the plan of salvation sometimes uh, uh, in the heavens. Um, I'm even thinking a little more basic than that. 
In the, in the psalm itself, what does the psalm start out with? The first six verses are focusing on what? Creation. Creation. The seventh verse, which is to what? Are, is it really a switch? You see? But it's not a switch. This is the point. Is the, is the psalmist trying to help us understand the, uh, looking into the heavens? Notice how he says the sun runs its circuit, predictable, every day starting and ending. The, the heavens are, 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 are um, um, what's the word I'm looking So organized, so predictable. The laws that govern how things run are constant, never changing, never varying. Then he says, so he, he points our mind to nature to see how predictable, how constant the laws of nature are. If I were to drop this pen, how many have a doubt as to what will happen if I let go? The laws are predictable, so predictable, so constant, never changing, that we see the glory of God who is predictable, never changing, always constant, always there, sustaining and creating. And we also see, as we've talked in this class before, what law do we see in nature as we look to the heavens? The law of love, that law of beneficence, that law of giving, the circuit of beneficence, as it says in Desire of Ages. Um, and then he transitions our mind to see in, in verse 7 that the law of the Lord is perfect, making wise the simple and giving strength. How does the law make us wise and give us strength? What law? What law is it talking about? The law of love, she says. So how does the law of love, what kind of wisdom do you get from the law of love? You look to the character of God. Yes, this is where you see the law of love. And when you see the character of God as revealed in Christ, what kind of wisdom do you get? How God is. How God is. But how does that apply to our lives? How do we, how do we live wisely with this knowledge? Yes. How to love your neighbor. How to love your neighbor. Pardon? Live in peace. Live in peace. Do we get an insight as to the very building blocks of life itself? Do we get an insight as to as God who is love, when he began to create, he constructed and built life to operate in harmony with his own nature of love? Do we get this insight? Do we understand that as we choose to harmonize with God's design for life, there's health, there's healing, there's, there's well-being, there's restoration. As we choose to step out of that design, there's pain and suffering. Is this, does this give us wisdom to understand the law? Yeah. Does it give us wisdom and informed to, to how do we make choices? And you notice how it, it progresses. We see the law in nature. Then he transi- we see the glory of God, his character in nature. Then he transitions to the law, which is an expression of God's character of love. Then he transitions down to the next step is down in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden fault. Keep your servant also from willful sin. Was, is the law in any way involved in helping us discern our errors? How does the law help us? Did God... Did God distill down the law into a form that would be very helpful to us? Yes, at Sinai, he wrote it on stone. Why did he have to write it on stone, by the way? Where was his original writing place for the law? In the hearts of men. That's the new covenant. I will write my law 
in the heart and mind. When Adam sinned, was the law of God still written there? Wasn't there anymore. There was another law. What, what law was, was written into the heart of man when Adam sinned? Selfishness. The scientists call survival of the fittest. Watch out for number one, me first. That law is written in the heart now is the way we naturally do things. And so God had to put his law on stone so we could look at that law, look at our heart, and say, wait, there's something wrong. Romans tells us this in Romans 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. We, the written law is a diagnostic instrument. It's like an MRI of the soul. We look into the law and we can see ourselves. What do we see when we look in the law? Yeah. Change. Does the law cure us? No. No. What happens when we make the mistake and think that the law cures us? Has anybody ever made that mistake? By the law, we will be cured. What happens when it when we go that direction? You keep the law so well that you crucify God. Yes, isn't that right? They were keeping the law because they were going to cure themselves by it. Sure. All otherwise known as legalism, he said. He said, so the law diagnoses, then it doesn't cure. What does cure? What is the cure for our, the law? Okay, maybe, let's back up first. The law was originally written on the heart and mind of man when God created Adam in the garden. They were made perfect and they had the law and character of love written into their hearts. Yes? Okay. When they sinned, the law was no longer there. The law of selfishness was written in. So the written law has come, and has come to diagnose. We just read. I wouldn't know what my problem was except for the law. So when we look into the law and it diagnoses us, what are we diagnosed with? What's our problem? Sin. Okay. Selfishness. Okay. This self-centered egocentrism. The law only diagnoses, doesn't cure. What is the remedy? What do we need? We need the love of God. Where do we need the love of God? Back to our psalm. When the psalmist says, keep your servant also from willful sins. What's he saying? What's another way you might phrase that? What's he actually asking for? What is necessary to keep someone from willful sins? Imprisonment? Chain them to the wall? A new heart and right spirit. So the, the law that was originally in the heart got displaced by the law of selfishness, survival of the fittest. So now we do willful, selfish things, but we want to be kept from willful sin. So we need a new heart, a perfect human heart, a perfect human. Where in the universe can you find one of those? In Jesus Christ. Okay. Jesus Christ is where we find the remedy. He is, he is the source of the perfect human character that we need. This, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Or, Peter says, we become partakers of the divine nature. It is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We get a perfect character, a perfect humanity from Jesus Christ. So, if you were a villain and you wanted to destroy people, as many as possible, a good weapon might be a biologic weapon, a viral infection that you that spreads rapidly from person to person and, and all people get infected. And let's say you were this villain and you spread this infection and people were now in this terminal state of, of dying and someone comes along with a remedy that will cure all who take the remedy. What strategy might you employ to prevent as many as possible from taking the remedy? 
convince them that it, it, it just won't work. That's just mythology. That's just superstition. You guys can fix yourself. You don't need to believe in that God thing. In fact, um, you know, there is no remedy anyway. We're naturally evolving over time to fix and heal ourselves. We don't need that remedy. So convince them it won't work. What, what else? Make them think that the doctor who has the remedy is actually a tyrant who will kill you. I've got a remedy, but if you don't take it just like I prescribe it, I will torture and kill you. How many want to go to a doctor like that? Okay, so misrepresent the doctor who has the remedy, so we don't go to him. What else? Tell them the remedy might make them worse. Okay, so they become afraid of the remedy. The remedy itself can't be destroyed, but our belief in the remedy can be destroyed. Okay, what about offering counterfeit remedies? Putting a whole bunch of counterfeit remedies out there, so it's hard to pick which ones really works. Or how about offering the idea that you don't need a remedy, you need to go to court and have yourself legally declared well. Now, once you go to court and get legally declared well, that's all you need. You don't actually need the remedy. Or how about ideas that, that undermine the medium through which the remedy is applied? I was actually, after I made the lesson, I was uh, reading this morning in a book, Desire of Ages, and I read this and I thought, wow, here's another one. This is out of page 671 in the book, Desire of Ages. The comforter is called the spirit of truth. He work, his work is to define and maintain the truth. He first dwells in the heart as the spirit of truth and thus becomes the comforter. There is comfort and peace in the truth, but no real peace or comfort can be found in falsehood. It is through false theories and traditions that Satan gains power over the mind. By directing men to false standards, he misshapes the character. Through the Holy Scriptures, the Holy Spirit speaks to the mind and impresses truth upon the heart. Thus he exposes error and expels it from the soul. It is by the spirit of truth working through the word of God that Christ subdues his chosen people to himself. Now, as we continue on, it says the Holy Spirit was the highest gift that he could solicit. Christ could solicit from the Father. The spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent. And without this, the sacrifice of Christ would have been to no avail. The power of evil had been strengthening for centuries and the submission of men to this satanic captivity was amazing. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead who would come with no modified energy but the fullness of divine power. It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's redeemer. It is by the spirit that the heart is made pure. Through the spirit, the believer becomes a partaker of the divine nature. Christ has given his spirit as a divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated cultivated tendencies to evil and to impress his own character upon the church. The very image of God is to be reproduced in humanity. The honor of God, the honor of Christ, is involved in the perfection of the character of his people. Are you aware as I read this, were you thinking, wow, if we were to attack that idea, we could undermine the remedy. The the viral infection is destroying humanity. The viral infection of self-centeredness, of distrust in God that's destroying humanity will continue to rage if we, number one, don't recognize that the Spirit was given as a regenerating agent. What we need is we need that legal pardon in the courts of heaven. We don't need that regenerating force. Or, if you've noticed recently in the last few years, there's been an attack against the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't exist. There isn't a trinity. There's the Father and the Son. Within our church, the Holy Spirit has been attacked by some 
former evangelists in our church. I don't know if you've, how many have gotten the little emails that have gone around? There's a real agenda that the idea of the Trinity, and they, and they, and they will come at you and say, this idea of the Trinity, it's Catholic. It's pagan. There is no Trinity. Well, if there's no Holy Spirit, guess what? There's no effectual means whereby what Christ has achieved for us can be applied to the heart. And it's interesting that those same people I've read, those same people that attack the Holy Spirit and say, there is no Holy Spirit. There's Christ and there's the Father, but there's no Holy Spirit. We'll also then talk about salvation was a legal process, and we have salvation by by claiming the blood in a legal way. I'm going to suggest to you that the real plan of salvation is regenerating. It's healing, it's restoring, it's cleansing, it's freeing us from fear and self-centeredness. It's putting love back in the heart. Are we willing, it says in Revelation 12, those ready to meet Christ, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Think through the meaning. Don't love their life to shrink from death. Meaning they're not acting to save self. They're willing to give their lives. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. Something has changed. Do we see that transformation in history? Moses, at 40, murders the overseer. At 80, write my name out of the book, rather than hurt these people. Saul of Tarsus, stoning and beating people that won't become Jews, later writes, I would gladly give my life that my fellow Jews might live. You see a change in characters come about. How did that change happen? Through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. So I'm going to suggest... That Satan has a strategy. Christ came to produce what none of us could produce. Perfect character with the law of love written back in the templates of the human mind, brain, soul, heart. He achieved this for us. We couldn't do it. The Holy Spirit now will take all that Christ has achieved and those who trust him will reproduce it. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We get new motives, new hearts, new desires, new longings. We, we no longer live in fear and insecurity to watch out for self. We trust him, live by faith. In his, in his sight, oversight for us. Thus we're able to give rather than, than, than watching out to protect and take. Psalms 19. Let's look at Psalms 22 very, very quickly before we go on to the rest of the lesson. Psalms 22. And we'll just scan through some of the verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? As so far from the words of my groaning. Of course, immediately what comes to mind when you hear this is this Psalms 22 is a prophecy of what Christ is going to go through. Christ actually spoke these words. First, was Christ actually forsaken by God? Or was this his human longing, his agony, the emotional temptation? Understand, it says in James chapter 1, that no one say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil feelings or desires. And it says that Christ, in Hebrews, that Christ was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. So here we have in Gethsemane and other places, Christ with human emotions, he's feeling abandoned, he's feeling forsaken, he's feeling uh, that the Father is not there for him. But as we read the rest of Inspiration, what do we find? Where was the Father during the crucifixion? Right there with his Son. But Christ didn't feel that presence. Have you ever had the experience of feeling distant from God? Have you ever had the feeling of, of feeling depressed, like no one was around, like you were all alone and abandoned? Well, you're not. This is a temptation. A temptation to believe your feelings. Rather than what Jesus said in John 8.32, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
And this is what Christ clung to at the cross. He knew his Father's character. He knew his Father's heart. And so we see the prophecy here that Christ would have this, this anguish of feeling abandoned by his Father. Verse 6, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insult, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Boy, isn't this exactly what they said? They said this while he was on the cross. Oh, he trusts the Lord. Let's see if the Lord will deliver him. They hurled insults at him. Verse 9, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb, you have become my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help me. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Um, the uh, Hebrew here actually, rather than encircle, the Hebrew here actually literally means crown me. They crown me. And the strong bulls of Bashan are, are, are a metaphor to those bullish Roman soldiers who crowned him with a crown of thorns. Roaring lions tear their prey. They open their mouths wide against me. My strength is dried up like a, a potsherd, and I am as dry as an old piece of pottery. My tongue clings to my jaw. You have brought me to the dust of death. What happens when someone's crucified? They dehydrate and sanguinate. They become completely dry. Their mouth becomes parched. Exactly what's described here. And Christ, of course, confirms this when he says, I, I thirst. I thirst. So he's describing a death in which, which he's going to become dehydrated. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Do you understand when, when David wrote this Psalms, crucifixion as a way of punishment did not exist yet in history. So he's prophesying a future form of punishment that didn't even yet exist. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing again, prophesying what would happen. I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. Notice what Christ is going to do, this prophecy. Christ is going to come and suffer, but in this suffering, he's going to do something. He's going to declare what? The name of the Father. What's another way of saying the name of the Father? The character of God. Remember what, what Jesus said to his disciples, that, it, uh, that it's time for me to be glorified, and I will glorify the Father. Remember why? When I am lifted up, will draw all unto me. At his crucifixion was the ultimate revelation of the true character of God, that the one with all power at his disposal wouldn't use his power to stop those, his own creatures, from abusing him. Wow. This is the exact opposite of what Satan alleged. Satan alleged he's got power, and if you don't do things his way, he'll hurt you. At the cross, we find just the opposite. Yes, he has all power, but even if you spit on him, abuse him, and kill him, he won't stop you. Wow. All the ends of the earth remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families and nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. You see, there's a prophecy. We see so much has already been fulfilled, but this is yet unfulfilled. There's coming a time when those who've gone down to the dust will rise again and worship him. There's a promised resurrection here. There's a promise that Christ will be victorious, that he will rule over again, and all things will be restored. And I think this is such a wonderful psalm because you have already so much fulfilled in the life of Christ that we can have confidence that the last portion is going to be yet fulfilled as well. Does it give you hope? Yeah. Questions, comments? Yes. I came across something this week. I've just started investigating a little bit, but uh, the authors shared the insight that when the 
in the wilderness when the people would have their tents outside the sanctuary that was by tribes. And if you take the numbers of the folks, like Judah was the large group and the group with them, and they were, I think, to the east. But you take the way they all camped out, if you looked at it from a balloon or coming from the height, it actually was the shape of a cross. So Yes, that's true. Investigate. So it's, yeah. it's neat to see the sanctuary is the heart of the cross. Because a lot of our Protestant friends and others, you know, the sanctuary is, is divorced from the cross. So it's neat to see the two so so closely put together. And maybe we'll even get to that in the lesson because there is a section in the lesson that deals with the sanctuary today. I hope we have time to get there because there's so much that is rich in meaning in that symbolism. Thank you. Um, so we have a future where Christ reigns in righteousness. What can we do to help bring that about? Yes. That passage has bothered me a lot because I felt like if Christ was in blackest despair, what hope is there for us? But I read a commentary on that in the last few months, and they pointed out that the Hebrews memorized these passages of Scripture, and when they started out on a passage, everybody knew what was coming next, and this is actually a declaration of faith. So when we started out on this um, this cry regarding the human condition, they all, anybody who heard it, would have understood that the rest of the passage with it, which was a declaration of faith. I like that very much. So, so basically, if you knew the whole rest of the psalm, then you knew the whole story that he was telling you. By quoting the beginning, he's telling you that all this is going to happen, and then eventually the end is going to happen where he rules again. Yeah, I like it very much. Yeah, very nice. What is God waiting for? Why hasn't Christ yet returned? What do you understand to be the obstacles that are obstructing the return of Christ? Okay, she says the reproduction of the character of God in human people. Yes. John 17 talks about a healthy unity. Okay, the believers coming into a unity that we're still fragmented and fractured. We don't have the unity of John 17 that they will be one as I am one, you and me, me and you, and all of us together in unity. Or as Colossians, all things under one head, even Jesus Christ. Yes, coming back into unity at one minute, the day of atonement. Oh, see how the rich meaning is all there. Very nice. So what keeps us fractured? What keeps us from coming to unity? What keeps us from experiencing the reproduction of Christ's character within? What is the obstacle? Christ said, fear, okay? What keeps us in fear? Selfishness. Misunderstanding. Christ said, when the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all nations as a witness, then the end will come. Okay, what's the kingdom? The gospel of what kingdom? Kingdom of what? The kingdom of love. Has the gospel, the good news of the God of love, been preached to the whole world? Or has another... Remember Paul says, even if an angel of light comes with another gospel, let him be eternally condemned? Has another so-called gospel gone to the world? This is why. We have a mission to do. This is what I think. Ellen White says, the final message of mercy, the light in the world for Christ's coming is the truth about his character of love. The truth about the king of the kingdom of love. 2 Corinthians tells us that we fight against everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. This week as I was preparing the lesson, I received an email from a listener, one of our online listeners, who was confused as to why in the few lessons past I had taken such umbrage with the study guide. 
because this person knows the, the principal contributor to our, our quarterly and knows the principal contributor very much appreciates what we teach and has much in common with our perspectives. And this person also happened to have a copy of the original manuscripts submitted for our lesson. And then they went back and began to compare what came out in publication with what the author submitted. And they found some serious changes. And I'll just give you an example of the changes. They're in the notes for this week. Remember a few weeks ago, lesson five, Monday's lesson, last paragraph. This is what we read in the lesson. The Hebrew wording of both Leviticus 9.24 and 10.2 was the same. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed. Consumed what? In the, case, in the first case, the offering, and the other, the sinner. What a powerful representation of the plan of salvation. At the cross, the fire from God, the wrath of God, consumed the offering, and that was Jesus. Thus, all who put their faith in him never have to face that fire, that wrath, because a substitute did it for him. That's what we read in our quarterly. Here's what was actually in the original manuscript on Lesson 5, Monday, last paragraph. According to verse 21 and 22, the entire congregation was in danger of being destroyed because of rebellion of, the, of these men. Presumption breeds disobedience. Disobedience, not checked, develops into full-blown rebellion. Rebellion self-destructs. Moses pled with both the congregation and the rebels. This was their opportunity for, now quoting, this is a quote coming out of Patriarchs and Prophets, quote, Jesus the angel who went before the Hebrews sought to save them from destruction. Forgiveness was lingering for them. But they stubbornly persisted in their rebellion. God in his infinite wisdom and mercy dared not allow them to live and continue their vicious work, which would have resulted in anarchy and even greater loss of life. Is that the same message? No. Because I had all 13 lessons sent to me, I had digital analysis of what was in actually the entire quarterly and the entire original manuscripts. And over 60% has been replaced. Over 60% of the original manuscript has been replaced. Think that through. I know personally two other principal contributors that told me the same thing happened to them without their consent. One was so distraught that after it happened and it came out, he put up his own website with his original manuscripts on the website so anybody could see the original manuscripts. But he worked for the church at the time at the general conference and he was told if he didn't bring it down, he'd be fired. So he was ordered to take it down. Why is this happening? And does this have any relationship with our experience here in Collegedale? You see, historic Adventism, I want you to understand historic Adventism. Historic Adventism valued freedom. Freedom to think. Promoted the principles of Romans 14, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. Thus you find in historic Adventism, Ellen White was a Trinitarian. Believed in the divinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. James White, her husband, and Uriah Smith, editor of the view, were Arians. They did not believe Christ was divine. They believed Christ was created. Now, this is a pretty significant doctrinal difference, isn't it? The divinity of Christ. Yet neither of those two men were barred from leadership or precluded from being speakers, teachers, editor of the review, because they differed on a doctrinal point. 
our church was founded on the principles of openness, freedom to think. Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. As long as we are moving toward the common goal of God's character of love, practicing his methods of presenting truth and love, leaving people free, there was a unity. There was a harmony. If you go back and study the apostolic church, the church of of, of Christianity for the first 250 years after Christ, you will find there was a wide range of theology. And you can see this actually in the book of Acts. When the eunuch was riding along reading the uh, um, the book of Isaiah, and Philip explains to him what it means, that, and they talk about baptism, the eunuch says, well, there's water. What hinders us? And Philip said, of course, well, there's 28 fundamental beliefs we have to go over. No, there were no 28. You accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're baptized, you're a Christian. This is the early church. This was openness. Everybody coming back to the principles of truth presented in love, leaving people free. But I'm going to tell you, something seems to have changed in the church. We are growing from our historic, open, tolerant, free-thinking society to something in which there is an orthodoxy litmus test. Why would the editors delete a gracious God concept and insert a punitive God concept? Why don't we allow views, uh, divergent views, when our local leadership had a rainbow views of the atonement, why wouldn't they allow our views to be presented with them? Is this part of the spiritual war over the nature and character of God that is coming to a head at the end of time to prepare the world for Christ's coming? Do we see this as a part of the inevitable process? When Satan comes to impersonate Christ, what will separate his impersonation from the true? Will it be the feet? As long as the feet don't touch the ground, we know it's the real one. Is that it? Just watch the feet. No. Will it be his voice? No. Will it be the way he looks physically? No. Will it be the methods he employs? And what methods will he employ the false Christ use? Well, we're told what happens. He first will come melodiously, offering promises and, and gifts. But then there's a group that hold out and no one can buy or sell save him who has the mark of the beast. Coercive pressure comes to bear. And if we still hold out imprisonment, if we still hold out, what comes a death penalty? And what do some teach God will do to the wicked in the end? He will send plagues to pressure. After the years of blessings, he sends plagues, the ten last plagues, to pressure, punish, and coerce. And if we still don't surrender to God, then, of course, he uses his power to torture and to kill. How is this different than the false Christ? And so those who have this view of God, when Satan comes impersonating Christ, I suspect will say this. This is our God. We have waited for him. This is our God. God is waiting for a people who will study for themselves, who will think for themselves, who will not let anyone else, including me, tell tell you what to think. But as Hebrews says, the new covenant, no one will say to his brother, know the Lord, because they will all know me that each one of us will have a personal, intimate knowledge with God and his character for ourselves. And thus we can go out and share that knowledge for ourselves. So is it possible that the majority of Christians, the majority of the members of our church, are like the Jews and the Samaritans in Christ's day? Eager, open, longing for the truth about God's character of love, as Jesus revealed. But there are others in positions of power who seek to misrepresent that message. And, and this is what I think. 
possibly is going on. Why don't we just allow the principal contributor to put her ideas out there and we study them? Why don't we allow those other views that, that, that show this other ver- version of God to be presented? Because I think, or conversely, why don't we just say, hey, this is every week, editor Clifford Goldstein, this is his quarterly every week. We leave everybody else's name out. Why don't we do it that way? Because when we put another person's name on it each quarter, it gives the illusion that there's a homogenous way of thinking of the thought leaders of the church, and we all see it the same way, and we all agree in the same way, and if you read it and go, wow, if he sees it that way, and he sees it, and she sees it, and that person sees it, and year after year after year, everybody sees it the same way, well, what am, I must be really out on the outs. I must be really confused. It's an illusion. The reality of the Adventist church, it's been a plethora of thinking. We come from different backgrounds, different perspectives, and we've always valued freedom to think freedom to come to our own conclusions. And I, and I think there's a dangerous, dangerous thing happening within our church. And so I'm calling for those listening to begin using what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.3, that we use divine weapons to demolish strongholds. And so let's start loving our enemies. Let's start ministering to those who hold a different view. Let's start inviting them to our homes for meals. Let's, uh, when, when somebody in their family is sick, let's take, take some, some food and bread and things over to their house. Let's pray for them. Let's love our enemies in our church. Let's go at this, practicing and showing in our lives what God's character really looks like. Yes? I think we see something comparable to this physically when we limit the gene pool. It's called inbreeding we produce all kinds of defects and abnormalities. I think the same thing happens when we theologically limit the thinking pool. The the defects and and abnormalities are much more quickly developed than if we're constantly bringing in new thinking, new ideas, trying to improve where we are. Do you think I'm misunderstanding what's happening here? No. I mean, this is, uh, from, from a heavenly perspective, the war has always been about the hearts and minds, always been about the thinking. What I read about in Desire of Ages a moment ago, that the Spirit is the comforter because he brings truth to bear, and Satan misshapes the character by the false ideas he gets us to believe. This is a mental warfare over the way we believe and think about God. That's the core of it. I was just wanted to ask a question, maybe sure. make a comment. Do you, you feel then maybe the structural change in our church in 1903 has basically brought us to where we are today? Specifically, you mean the... With what you're talking about specifically. Yeah, there were, you mean the crisis with the Kellogg stuff? Uh, probably more than just Kellogg. Yeah. In the, you know, because that's when the church manual came out. That's when the fundamental beliefs came out. That's when certain things came out. Historically, if you read Historic Adventism, Ellen White says that a particular form of gospel is the right arm to the gospel message and is the most powerful representation of the gospel. Do you remember what she said it is? The medical ministry. Now, why is the medical ministry the most powerful representation of the gospel? Why? Serving others, number one, it's love and action. There's more than that, though. But it's a representation of healing. It's a representation of healing. And think about the principles of health. The laws of health are not arbitrary. 
They're not rules written down and imposed upon. Life is constructed to operate on certain laws. When you violate those laws, negative health consequences come. All physicians work to heal in harmony with the laws of health. We can't get people well when we're breaking the laws of health, can we? No, okay? Same thing spiritually. This is the lesson that that the health ministry could teach us, that we can only get people spiritually well in harmony with God's spiritual laws. And it's not an arbitrary rule put down that if you don't do it, then the, then the imposer of the rule, the doctor, is going to punish you for not taking the medicine. No, it's a consequence of being out of harmony for the way things were built. So we have this message. What happened in 1903 because of the Kellogg disaster when he became pantheistic, if you know what pantheism is, you know, God is in this, in this piece of wood right here, his character. No, it's not, it's not true. He was very, very mis- misled by this. But because of that, the church leader, and there was also some political things and some personal things that Kellogg um, had some some you know issues where he looked down at his nose at the, the at the pastorate and the theologians of his day. He was highly educated as well. Most of the physicians were. Most of the pastorate in the early church were very uneducated, and so he was very critical of them and thought they weren't very bright and couldn't understand these things. And so uh, there was a there was a power struggle going on in the church at that time. Um, there were more people working at the um, at the sanitarium in Battle Creek than were employed by the General Conference. Okay, so we had more employees working for him than the whole church had working for them at that time. So there was a big power struggle going on, and who was going to control the church? And instead of having, as Ellen White suggested, that the seminary and the medical school should be together on the same campus, learning from each other. At, because of the split, the seminary and the medical school, you know, one's in Loma Linda and one's in Michigan, okay? And they diverged and they haven't ever gotten back together. And you see coming out of the medical school a view of God that we teach here. And coming out of the seminary, you see penal substitution, a different view of God. And we've never reconciled those two. Well, the reason why I brought this up is because she says blatantly that we're modern Israel walking in the footsteps of ancient Israel and in, and you know in that day we seen the then known leaders of the church trying to control everything, and that's why they were persecuting the Christians. And so if this is true, then now and forward we're going to see more and more persecution from you know the hierarchy. And and so this hierarchy you know evidently has uh, got a disease. <laughs> of and, and remember, in that hierarchy of Christ's day, where's Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea? Okay, and so I, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think that there are parallels there, but I don't want to paint a brush that would label anybody in church leadership as as not being, you know, on the Lord's. I think there are many in church leadership that are doing God's work and and serving His cause. So I'm not. I, I, and, and as I said in here a couple of weeks ago, I am not attacking the church. I am attacking an infection of idea that has infected the church. There's a false, distorted thinking about God, his character, his methods, his principles. Uh, the, the purpose of what Christ achieved, our mission as a people, has all been kind of diverted. And that's what I'm attacking, not, not people. Yes? I grew up in the church, and it wasn't until 1971 or 72 that I first heard the term laity and hierarchy. And this is a non-biblical concept that comes from the Catholic Church. And we actually follow the Protestant model, which places power with the congregation and we continue to have power to outvote but we don't always exercise that power yes no the design and the structure is exactly right but what's happening in function 
because people have abdicated their responsibility to check up and to change when change needs to be made. Yes. Well, people are just leaving, period. I mean, out of my family, uh, five siblings, four have left the church with their families, and they feel better when they get out because they, they don't understand, but it's a mistaken fundamental understanding of God. Interestingly, um, I, no, I hear what you're saying. Um, in, in our class, I have had, I can't really list the numbers of people who have either emailed me, sent me a letter, or came to me personally and told me that they were raised in the church, they left the church, and after hearing this perspective, they're back again, that this brought them back. Uh, have you heard this? Okay, I see a lot of people saying absolutely. Good. Um, a, a pastor uh, that in, in our local community that, that has a, uh, an objection to our class told me to my face that the reason he objects is that he believes that what we teach leads people out of the church. And I said to him, I said, I appreciate that. Thank you for your honesty. That's a nice hypothesis. Are you willing to test the hypothesis against the evidence? And there were two people that happened to be with me that both had the experience of being raised Adventist, both had left the church, both had heard this come to this class, and both are back in the church now. And they both gave their personal testimony. And I said, now, I can line up more from our class if you'd like to meet with them and interview on your own to see if, in fact, your hypothesis is borne out by evidence. And can you show me any evidence of anybody that you can show that has come to my class and now, after hearing this message, leave the church? I said, are you willing to look at the evidence? He said, no, he wasn't willing to look. What do you do? One thing that seems exciting here is that kind of what's going to happen, and if we find creative ways and even invite more dialogue during SAS lessons, we... uh, after the fact that if they have concerns or questions, invite the whole church, you know, some other what's another website or something to simply I, flesh out what's true if they say something that's not true. I love this. I love this idea. And in fact, over the last year and a half, many times I have offered a willingness to have an open dialogue and discussion uh, at Sabbath afternoons with, with any of the leaders and, and every time, no, no, they won't do it. They won't do it. Be a website, whatever, just invite other churches and say, hey, what did you really, what do we need to, not to be critical, because it's got to be a scary thing to write the lesson, because we're going to stay things through all eternity, but it's something that needs to be rounded out. If I was a contributor, I'd love to have someone say, hey, well, thanks for balancing me out, clarifying something I didn't say well, because I don't want to mislead the church to the left, to the one ditch, or the other ditch. Yeah, no, I think uh, proper editorial processes are appropriate. As an author, um, I very much appreciate my editors who will send things back to me, give me opportunity to, to read their changes, and then appreciate, endorse, or clarify. That's not what I meant, uh, but that's not what happened here. Okay? Yeah. Pardon? Yes, it was just changed without. And the, the, the two that I know personally told me those changes were made without the author's consent, yet going out under their name. Okay? So... Let's go on to Monday's lesson, and because we're still talking about these two God concepts that are, that are, that are warring it out. Um, last paragraph, Monday's lesson, the same God who spoke the world, that's Sunday's lesson, it says, um, last paragraph, um, Monday's lesson, here too we see the theme of judgment echoed through the first angel's message, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, the hour of his judgment has come. One of the things about God, about what makes him so worthy of our worship, is that we can indeed trust that in the end, not only will judgment come but it will be just and righteous, nothing like the fallible, imperfect justice meted out even by the best human courts. From the death of Abel, whose blood uh, cried out from the ground, up through today, onto the last day of the fallen human history, the crimes and the unfairness and the inequities of the world do indeed cry out for justice. 
And um, if you, some of you follow our Facebook page that this week that uh, there's uh, been a, a gentleman who's been arguing for an eternal burning hell. And we've had some, I think, friendly dialogue back and forth based on that. And so b- based on this idea of justice, um, there is this view that God will use his power to miraculously keep people alive for the purpose of inflicting painful physical suffering for days before he kills them. Now let's put this in context. Adolf Hitler burned six million Jews but had the decency to gas them first. And we call him a monster. Yet we argue for a God who will sustain a miracle to keep people consciously awake while he tortures them for days and we call him righteous. There is, this is the most ugly, twisted, distorted lie coming out of hell itself and it's taught in our church. And those people, one of, the, one of the great offenses I read last week of those people who stand against our class here in our community is that we don't believe God will use his power to torture people in the end. Now, because we don't believe God inflicts it doesn't mean we don't believe they suffer. There's a difference between believing that an unremedied disease, uh, you have a disease and you refuse the remedy, and as that disease ravages you because you won't take the remedy, there is suffering in that process. That's different than believing if you don't take the remedy, the doctor will put you on a ventilator and begin blowtorching you with a blowtorch and giving you uh, artificially uh, uh, you know, uh, drugs to keep you alive longer so he can torture you longer because you won't take the remedy. Those are two completely different things, aren't they? Yes. Well, we do believe that if you don't take Jesus Christ, partake of him and experience a new heart and right spirit, that sin, the wages of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. That sin destroys and causes suffering and causes misery and anguish. And these people will suffer these things because of their own unhealed condition as God mercifully and graciously cries over them. Yes, I saw some more hands. Yes. It says in Psalms 22, it says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in some ways, Jesus had become that serpent on a stick that brought healing. But I think it's interesting. I, I have a strong impression from my study that the lost that are that refuse God's cure, that allowed sin to bring this onto them, may well cry, My God, my God, why did I forsake you? Now, he only forsakes us because we won't embrace him, we won't accept him, so he has to acknowledge that. No. For them to haunt themselves, saying, Why did I forsake the one? was willing to heal me, to cure me, to pay my debts. To, to No question about it. It's, it's because we turn our back on him. I want to, where, where can these other ideas get energy from, from our church? Well, one of the things, if you remember that meeting that uh, we had with Gordon Beats and Greg King when they brought that document and, and spoke with us after class uh, some months back, one of the things that they suggested about the problems with our class, and particularly the way I teach, is that I don't take the entirety of the inspired record that I only take a little bit here and a little bit there and just take the verses that I like and kind of string them together. This was a suggestion, uh, which I reject, by the way, because I think we our, our goal, and I've always said, we want to take it all. We don't leave anything out. Doesn't everybody? I mean, don't a lot of people do Well, so right now, right now, I want to take, some, I want to take some, some passages about this issue of what God does in the end and show how, when they're taken together, we get our view. When you leave out sections, you get their view. Okay, this is out of Great Controversy, page 539. It starts out sounding very much like what the other side says. Listen to this. God has given his word, God has given in his word decisive evidence that he will punish 
the transgressors of his law. Those who flatter themselves, this is a great conversation, 539. Those who flatter themselves that he is too merciful to execute justice upon the sinner have only to look at the cross of Calvary. The death of the spotless Son of God testifies the wages of sin is death. That every violation of God's law must receive its just retribution. Christ, the sinless, became sin for man. He bore the guilt of the transgression and the hiding of his father's face until his heart was broken and his life was crushed out. Notice how she uses words like uh, just retribution or will punish, but then she's describing what happened. Okay? See, we we miss the description, what happened, the wages in his death, uh, the hiding of his father's face until his heart was broken and his life was crushed out. All this sacrifice was made that sinners might be redeemed. In no other way could man be freed from the penalty of sin. And every soul that refuses to become become a partaker of the atonement provided at such cost must bear in his own person the guilt and punishment of transgression. God has given to men a declaration of his character and his method of dealing with sin. Quote from Exodus 34. This is a quote from the Bible. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that by no means will clear the guilty. All the wicked he will destroy. The transgressors shall be destroyed together, and the end of the wicked shall be cut off. Psalms 145 and 37. The power and authority of the divine government will be employed to put down rebellion. The question you should be asking is, how will it be employed? Yet all the manifestations of retributive justice will be perfectly consistent with the character of God as merciful, long-suffering, benevolent being. So retributive justice will look like mercy, patience, and benevolence. You notice how that's not really... And and she goes on to describe further, because it's it's all in the same flow. If you keep reading, God does not force the will or judgment of any. Well, think that through. If God is saying, love me, all I want is your love. Open your heart and trust, I will heal you. But if you don't, I will use my power to kill you. Are you still free? No. No. So right here in the very next verse, God does not force the will or judgment of any. He's not threatening. He takes no pleasure in slavish obedience. He desires that the creatures of his hand shall love him because he is worthy of love. He should have them obey it because they have an intelligent appreciation of his wisdom, justice, and benevolence. All who have a just conception of these qualities will love him because they are drawn toward him in admiration of his attributes. The principles of kindness, mercy, and love taught and exemplified by our Savior are a transcript of the will and character of God. So when do you see Jesus torturing people? Okay, so uh, she's going to actually go on to explain. We're about to get there. All those harsh words you heard in the beginning, she's going to explain exactly what they mean. Christ declared that he taught nothing except that which he received from the Father. The principles of the divine government are in perfect harmony with the Savior's precepts. Love your enemies. Okay, are you having a hard time putting those together with those harsh words in the beginning? God executes justice upon the wicked for the good of the universe and even for the good of those whom his judgments are visited. For their good, how is that possible? Keep reading. He, who would, he would make them happy if he could do it. So in accordance with the laws of his government and the justice of his character, he surrounds them with tokens of his love. He grants them a knowledge of his law and follows them with the offerings of his mercy. 
This is the doctors offering them remedy, offering them cure, offering them free treatment. But they despise his love, make void his law, and reject his mercy. While constantly giving his gifts, they dishonor the giver. While constantly receiving his gifts, they dishonor the giver. They hate God because they know that he abhors their sin. Notice he doesn't abhor them. What does the doctor abhor? Disease, okay? Doctors hate sickness. They love patients, hate sickness. Okay, God abhors the sickness in our heart, loves us, loves us. The Lord bears long with their perversity, but the decisive hour will come at last when their destiny is to be decided. Will, they ch- will he then chain these rebels to his side? Will he force them to do his will? Those who have chosen Satan as their leader and have been controlled by his power are not prepared to enter the presence of God. Pride, deception, licentiousness, cruelty have become fixed in their characters. Can they enter heaven and dwell forever with those who they despised and hated on earth? Truth will never be agreeable to a liar. Meekness will not satisfy self-esteem and pride. Purity is not acceptable to the corrupt. Disinterested love does not appear attractive to the selfish. What source of joy, uh, enjoyment could heaven offer those who are wholly absorbed in earthly and selfish interests? Could those who have, coming to our last paragraph, could, could those who lives have been spent in rebellion against God, be suddenly transported to heaven and witness the high, the holy state of perfection that, every, that ever exists there, every soul filled with love, every countenance beaming with joy, enrapturing music and melodious strains rising in honor of God and the Lamb, and ceaseless streams of light flowing from the redeemed, from the, to the redeemed from the face of him who sits upon the throne. Could those whose hearts are filled with hatred of God, hatred of truth and holiness, mingle with the heavenly throng and join in their songs of praise? Could they endure the glory of God and the Lamb? No, no. Years of probation were granted them that they might, fo- might form characters for heaven, but they have never trained the mind to love purity. They have never learned the language of heaven, and now it is too late. A life of rebellion against God has unfitted them for heaven. Its purity, holiness, and peace would be torture to them. The glory of God would be a consuming fire. They would long to flee from that holy place. They would welcome destruction that they might be hidden from the face of him who died to redeem them. The destiny of the wicked is fixed by their own choice. Their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves and just and merciful on the part of God. Like the waters of the flood, the fires of the great day declare God's verdict that the wicked are incurable. Do you see how it all goes together now and that they will suffer because they're incurable, because their characters are fixed in rebellion, because to be in God's presence causes them torture, because when the truth sears through the lies and they see who they really are as an evil, selfish person who's exploited and abused people around them, when the conviction of guilt comes to their own heart, it causes agony. They hate themselves for who they are. They don't want to live anymore. This is what's happening. What else can God do for them except let them go? And the wages of sin is death. Yes, it's a completely different picture. We have, I, I have no problem when we put it all together with those words, but we have to understand the meaning. It's always in harmony with this character of love. Last comment. So out of his mercy and, and goodness, he's going to put them out of their misery? You could read it that way. That's not how I read it. But some people will read it that way. No, how I read it is he gives them the freedom of their own choice. They are incurable. Their condition of sinfulness, not being healed, which is, what is sin? Deviating from the law of love. And the law of love is what the universe is built to run on. Life is built on this. Deviations from it result in death. Or another way to say it, where, do, where does all life have its origin? And if sin separates us from God and God fully lets that separation go and he lets us go, what happens? 
we die. You can say it that way too. The sin, the sin severs from God. The sin causes pain. The sin destroys. The sin kills. God doesn't have to do it. Last comment, yes. An example that put this into context for my wife and myself was we were talking about the law of gravity last week. And if I go up onto a building and I step off, now I believe God brought the law of gravity into effect, okay? Now, who killed me? Was it my choice in stepping off that building? Or God, because he created the law of gravity? Exactly. Perfect example. Did everybody hear that? Yes. And so now, God has given us a choice. Adam stepped off that building. And the whole human race was plunged into a terminal condition. Christ came and partook of that condition for the purpose of restoration, healing, fixing what was broken in Adam. All who trust in Christ open their hearts. The Holy Spirit comes, as we read, and takes what Christ has, has achieved and reproduces it in us, rebuilding us, transforming us, recreating us in righteousness, giving us new hearts and right spirits, writing the law on the tablets of the heart, that we come to love God and love others more than self, coming, becoming partakers of the divine nature ready and fit to walk into heaven when Christ comes again. This is a message that God is waiting for us to take to the world so he can come again. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit will take all that Christ has achieved. We want to partake of the remedy of Jesus Christ. Write your law in our hearts and minds. Remove the fear and the selfishness, the distorted, the distorted ideas that keep us from trusting you. Transform us. Bring our hearts into unity with you and give us a vision of how we can work with you as your representatives, as your agents to take this final message of mercy to the world. We pray for our church, Lord. It's so infected with a, with a process of of control that, that, that wants to stifle thinking. And, and we pray that you will, will rise up a people that will love our brothers and sisters as you have loved us and, and that the message will go forward and, and we will fulfill your purpose to lighten this world and we can see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.